Father God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that we can turn to it and trust it, however difficult or odd it might seem. And we pray as we delve into this chapter, Lord, that you will speak to us, that you will um, have your grace upon us, and that your spirit will lead us into the truth of your word. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, we will apply it to our lives. And we will seek to live lives that honor and glorify you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you keep the passage open on page uh, 61, a little recap might help us. We missed a week last Sunday night. In chapter 1, if you remember, we saw the hand of God providentially uh, working to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Um, the, The threat of famine and possible death was there. So what did God do? He led his, he, all these plans through Joseph, he led his people to Egypt and he sustained them there. He enabled them to grow numerously, give them their own land and he sustained them through oppression and delivered them from the death of Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh's plot to kill all the uh, sons at the end of chapter one. And then that theme of, of God's providence carried on in chapter 2 where we, see, where we saw the hand of God that um, protected this one child, preserved the life of this child, Moses, who was going to be sort of great and a saviour to God's people and who we know is sort of a prototype, a foreshadow of the great saviour, the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter 3, we see this encounter. Moses, now a grown-up, He encounters the holy living God and he tells Moses that he's going to be the one to bring God's people out of slavery. And Moses sort of will help, this helps in our thinking tonight. He just says, well, who do I say sent me? You know, who are you? And God reveals his forever name, chapter 3, verse 15. Um, He is Yahweh, the great I am. And chapter 4 starts with all these excuses of why God shouldn't use Moses. Pitiful excuses, really, to the point where when Moses has run out of, run out of any more excuses, it's just, just send someone else, will you? I really don't want to do it. And if I think we're, if I'm going to sum up chapter 4, I think I'd sum it up like this. How much do you trust God? I think chapter 4 is about trust and our relationship with God. And verses 18 to 31 make that more clear to us. And hopefully you'll see that too tonight. But before we get started, let me just ask us that question. How much do we trust God? I mean, really trust God. Trusting God in in our daily lives, in the decisions that we make, in uh, our workplace, our relationships, with our finances, in our family. How am I trusting God? How am I trusting God and walking closely with him when I'm feeling pressured not to do that? When situations surrounding me are suggesting that I shouldn't trust God, that I need to try and trust myself or that I know best. How are we trusting God when we're feeling tempted to give in and to do things that we know we shouldn't do? Psychologists tell us, yes, I've been reading psychology today again. Going very fond of that website. 
Psychologists tell us that trusting a fellow human being is one of the hardest things we do as humans. To put ourselves at the sort of, in the care or vulnerable to somebody, to trust them with, with, with our life, with our finances, with all sorts of different things. They tell us it's such a hard thing to do. But we're not talking about trusting humans, are we? We're talking about trusting Yahweh, the great I Am. This living, almighty God is the God who has called Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. He's basically told him that, actually, I'm going to be the one who's really doing the rescue. I'm going to be the saviour to my people. Yet Moses just doesn't trust God. Verse 14, we're told, the Lord's anger burned against Moses. You see, Moses, he can't see the big picture. I love that phrase, he can't see the wood for the trees. Still a great phrase, isn't it? But he can't. What Moses sees are the obstacles, the dangers, the threats. And often that's the same for us too, isn't it, as Christians? We're told in God's Word that God has a plan for for us as Christians. We're told that God is working out his plans for us in our lives and that he will bring to completion the good works that he started for us. So we know that we've got a God who who loves us so much, who wants to do things in our lives and has plans to do things in our lives. A God who says, look, I'm so faithful, you can trust me. Yet so often we just find it really hard, I think, to trust God, don't we? So often we find it just so hard. I was thinking of, trying to think of the Psalms where they talk about God and and what it's about. And I remembered Psalm 62, and it took me forever to find it, but I remember the words. I just want to read this Psalm to you because I think this, what it tells us about God should be the basis for our Christian lives. It says, truly my soul finds rest in God. It's the Psalm for the song that we sing. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. David's having a rough time. But he says, yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock, my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall not be shaken. My salvation and my honour depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. David's not just saying this, you know, from a nice little vantage point. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Is that our relationship with God? Is that our relationship with God? Psalm 62? Moses didn't have that relationship with God, but praise God, he still used him. And shouldn't we praise God that he still uses people like us too? Let's dig into the passage. First thing I want us to see in verses 18 to 20, the reassurance that Moses seeks. Now, it's only short, but I think it's really significant. The language in these verses seems to suggest that Moses is testing the water. 
He asked permission from his father-in-law to take the family up sticks and go to Egypt. And why does he say he wants to go? He wants to go to Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. He wants to go and see if any of them are still alive. So what's on Moses' mind here? Is it the mission in hand? Or is it his past? You see, the language and God's words uh, in, in verse 19 suggests that he's worried. He's worried whether anyone would remember him as the Egyptian killer. If anyone would sort of expose him and show him for who he is or, or even kill him. Well, Jethro says, go. But then verse 19, God speaks. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. And do you know what's interesting? I was thinking about this. It didn't matter whether those people were alive or not. It didn't matter one little bit. Remember Psalm 62. Or have we forgotten it, just like we do so often? Moses was fulfilling God's plans. And God's plans don't fail. Even if they were alive, even if they did recognize it, it wouldn't matter. God would protect Moses, wouldn't he? God would be the one who would fulfill his plan through Moses, regardless of whether people remembered who he was and what he did. Moses' job was, should be to trust God. Not to be worried, sort of going back, just to see if any of them are alive or not. No, he should have been going back trusting the great I am Yahweh. Just like we are called to trust God in every situation, even if it looks difficult. Even if it looks like the outcome might not be what we want it to be. We are to trust God in our troubles, aren't we? In our suffering. Especially in our suffering. Yahweh is the God who calls us into his kingdom, a kingdom that is unshakable. And he is our defender. That's the God who we worship. He is our defender and protector. Moses by now should have known this. But thankfully God's word comes to him. Those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses goes. Moses goes. He takes his wife and sons, he puts them on a donkey, and he starts back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. He wants reassurance. He's trying to seek it on his own, but God gives it to him. He speaks to him. Because he is our defender, our protector. And he is a God who reassures his people. So Moses seeks reassurance, but God gives assurance in verses 21 to 23. The family are on the way back, and uh, verse 20 tells uh, Moses to use the staff, to take the staff, the staff where he's going to show the miracles, to perform wonders in front of Pharaoh. And he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to be the one that hardens Pharaoh's heart. So he won't let the people go. This isn't a great start for Moses, is it? He's not exactly the greatest person to go. And here he's being told, by God, I'm going to harden his heart so he won't let them go. 
Now, we know the heart, it refers to the intellect, the will, and sort of the whole of, of the person, the emotions from which someone acts. And the various Hebrew verses that we will see throughout Exodus regarding Pharaoh, describing his hardening of heart, all refer to a desire to act contrary to God's will, instead of accord with him. We see that throughout chapters 4 to 14. The writer, we believe, is Moses, wants to make it clear that Pharaoh is answerable for his own actions. We see that in chapter 8, verse 15. Yet here, God is stating to us quite clearly that it is his sovereign hand that ultimately governs the events that take place. We see it time and time again by the related as the Lord had said. We see it in chapter 7, verse 13, chapter 8, verse 15 and verse 18, chapter 9, verse 12 and verse 35. And he's given us a, a sort of biblical picture that, that we see again and again through Scripture that even though God is sovereign and, and he's working out his will <coughs> and purpose in all things, we are still responsible for our actions. And the writer wants to make that clear too as he reminds us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The sinner still remains responsible for his sin even if God's hand is at work. And Paul actually gives us a the the theology lesson in chapter 9, verse 16 to 18. He tells us why God hardened Pharaoh's heart ultimately to, to show his power, his authority. He's the true God. But let's draw it back. Because I don't think verse 21 is for us to sit and have a theological debate. It's to give assurance to Moses who is in control. God isn't this sort of demigod like Pharaoh thinks he is. Pharaoh thinks he's in control of everything. Now this is here, I believe, to be a practical encouragement. Not only to Moses but to these suffering slaves that they can trust this God. They can trust this God. This God who has heard their cries and sent Moses to rescue them. And then we read verse 22. Verse 21 is a hard verse. Verse 22 is the first of two uncomfortable verses. Israel has been in slavery for over 400 years. And now all their identity, their possessions, their land, everything's gone. They had nothing to pass down as an inheritance. And so when God says that Israel is my firstborn son, he's saying something really significant here. He's remembering and affirming again his covenant promise with Abraham. That God will bring his people into their inheritance. A land that was promised to them as an inheritance to their fathers. God sees Israel as his son, his firstborn. Remember, it, we've looked at this before in the past, all the promises of a, a fatherly inheritance. It's the first time that he uses this language, this uh, language of sonship and, and the implication of, of God being a father to us, a father that we can trust who these slaves can trust. And that's also how the New Testament wants us to see God. Yes, God's a righteous, just God, even a God of wrath. But to those into his family who have been called and saved by grace, we are now children of God. More than that, 
Remember when we did this in Galatians, we are sons of God. We are sons of God in that God sees us like in the ancient world as his firstborn with the inheritance. Remember the inheritance will go to, to the sons, especially to the firstborn. That's who, would, who, who the inheritance belonged to. And it's the same for us today, isn't it? Why are we like that sons of God, children of God? Because we have an inheritance too, don't we? And not an earthly inheritance, but an eternal inheritance, a future inheritance. One that Jesus came to secure for us in his death and resurrection. And it's in that relationship with Christ that we become sons of God, in that we have absolute assurance that our future is secure in Christ. And it's this same Father who is still calling people, calling us into his kingdom, calling us to trust him with all our hearts, to seek him and to ask of him. And he's a father who gives. Doesn't Jesus teach us that in the Gospels? When we ask in accordance with his will, he will lavish his blessings upon us. And it is this father who is going to show Pharaoh the cost of hurting his firstborn son. He says, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, verse 22. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. God says, I'm going to respond to you with my perfect just punishment. He is going to take the lives of Egypt's firstborn sons, especially Pharaoh's. And we see it fulfilled in chapter 12. And verse 12 says this, On that same night I will pass through Egypt, strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, that God wants his people to relate to him in that family sense. It's amazing at this critical point in the life of Egypt that that God calls them his son. The implication that he's our perfect father. I don't know what your experiences of fatherhood or having a father. Mine isn't very good. My dad left when I was eight, I think, seven or eight. So I've never understood what it's like to have a real father and, and... have that fatherly care. My mum always tried to be mother and father, which never really went well. Just so an angry person. Uh, so it didn't really go down well. But I, I never experienced a father growing up. And I always find that difficult with, with our children. You know, that wanting to be really good and get on with them. And, but actually, no, I'm a parent. But isn't it wonderful that we do have a perfect father to look to? Isn't it just so comforting that I am a child of God. He is my Father. He wants us to trust Him. He cares for me. He wants the best for me. He wants to bless me. And He's leading me to something far greater than I will ever know and experience here on earth. And that's how He wants us to view Him. 
We need to relate to him as a perfect father. And us, his children, his sons, with all the glorious benefits of being in his family. Well, let's move on because the third thing we see is the reason for Moses' lack of trust. Verses 24 to 26. The oddest verses in the Bible, yet I think this gives us the understanding for the whole chapter and why Moses lacked so much trust in God. It's the second uncomfortable verse, one that's caused so much theological debate over the years. It was great reading some of the responses to what was going on here. People who just didn't like it, so were trying to justify why it shouldn't be there or why it meant something else. It's great fun reading things like that. But it's so significant, it really is. It's significant to the chapter. I think there's some significance with this reference to firstborn son in the previous verses. And we're told quite simply that at a lodging place on the way, verse 24, God meets Moses and is about to kill him. I remember when I first read that, I just thought, what is going on here? This is bonkers. What am I supposed to say here? Hang on a minute. God's just met Moses had this massive burning bush experience, revealed him to to himself and has called him, wouldn't allow him to get away with any of his excuses, and then on the way to do the mission, he's going to kill him. What's going on? It's quite good. And then we're told that during this encounter, well, send shivers down me, Zipporah gets this flint knife, chops off her son's foreskin, starts flipping it about and wafting it on Moses' feet. It's absolutely repulsive. You know, I I was reading something that dodgy circumcisions, men can, well, boys, they can bleed to death. And you're just thinking, this is just, oh, some some of the nurses are nodding their head, yes. Just sort of randomly, come here, son, off. It's horrible, isn't it? But that's what she does. And and that seemingly sort of appeases God. And God says, right, there you go, carry on now. Sorted. Absolutely bonkers. As I say, I think this is the key to the whole chapter. I think it explains to us Moses' deep-rooted resistance to obeying God's call. The gospel, if you will, for for the Israelite, was the covenant that God made, uh, that he'd made with Abraham. And it's the one that he reiterates to the patriarchs and now through Moses to the people of God, the Israelites. And circumcision, we have know all this, we've done it before, it's the sign of the covenant, and it's evidence of the parents' faith in God. Remember that. Circumcision, it wasn't just God's promise to the people, his covenant. The circumcision aspect was evidence of the parents' faith in God. Faith in the promise of God to Abraham that through his seed would come blessing to Israel, to the whole world. We see that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. So as a sort of testimony of of the parents' faith in God's covenant promise, every male in Israel was to be circumcised. To ignore that meant being cut off, literally dead to the covenant promise. If you want to read that, read that in Genesis 17, 9 to 14, explicit there. So the basis of Israel's preservation was the covenant that God made, but also the obedience to the covenant by God's people. So here we've got Moses. He's about to go to Egypt. He's about to go to God's people to tell them that God was about to fulfill his promise to them based on his covenant. 
Yet Moses had showed no faith to God in the covenant because he hadn't circumcised his son based on the covenant. Now, the situation, why is this like this? Probably because of his wife. Her anger and her outburst suggest that, that it's something that she didn't want. She knew about it, hence the action. But you see, if God is going to take seriously Pharaoh's sin and kill his firstborn son, then according to God's own word, he should by right do the same to Moses. His son, for starters, cut him off. Moses had failed miserably to live in obedience to God. His relationship to God was poor. He didn't do his biblical obligations. And the main one of that, to show that he was trusting in the covenant promise, was to circumcise his son. It seems to be that he'd allowed the world to affect his life, his marriage to a non-Jew, a non-Israelite. And all of this, I think, goes to show why Moses didn't want to serve God. Because he wasn't living in faithful obedience to God. He has to ask in the first place, doesn't he, in chapter 3, who God was. Who, Who shall I say send me? What does that say about his relationship with God? And God has to say to him, I am who I am. The great I am is the one who's sending you. I think this is a reality check for us, isn't it? If the issue was Moses' relationship with God, I just think, isn't that always the issue for us as Christians today? You know, if we're walking closely with God and living obediently to God and His Word, our trust in God will continuously grow, won't it? And for us as Christians, if, if Jesus really is our King, and not, not in the kingly language or, or queen language of today, but, but what it truly meant to have a king, to really be the king's subjects, the servants of the king. If we are really submitting our lives to his rule, then this king should liberate us from all the troubles and pressures of this life. For King Jesus will lead us in the path of righteousness. Well, in this encounter between Moses and God, Zipporah acts. She acts on behalf of her husband. She circumcises her son. She sort of touches Moses' feet with it. And she says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. The the, the Hebrew is explicit. This is an outburst of anger. Maybe just refer to the fact that she just didn't want this for her child. She didn't want for him to have this identity. And Moses, being weak in his faith, goes along with it. We don't know. It seems to fit well. But she knows deep down what will sort this situation out. To circumcise Moses' son. And then it seems to appease Moses. Appease God, sorry. And God lets him now continue. Maybe this was the point, the critical point where Moses just gets it a little bit more. 
he understands in this encounter why his lack of trust, why his excuses, why he didn't want to go. He needed to restore his relationship with God. And it seems to have worked. Well, let's move on. Verses 27 to 31, the encouragement and assistance God gives. We're told then that Moses goes out to meet Aaron. They embrace and Moses tells Aaron everything that the Lord had said to him, all about the signs that he had been commanded to perform. Moses and Aaron get all the elders of the Israelites together in Egypt. They again tell them everything the Lord had said and he performed the signs to the people. These signs that he's to perform to Pharaoh, he performs, performs them to the people. And they believe. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, I love this, they bowed down and worshipped. Isn't it great? Well, where does this encouragement and assistant come from? I think it comes in two forms. Firstly, the form of Aaron. Moses' brother. I think it's comforting when you read Scripture to know that that this is how God sometimes works, often works. That sometimes in our weakness, and and God knows our weaknesses, He knows our faults, that often He doesn't leave us on our own. That that He brings encouragement to us from fellow Christians. And He's doing that in the words of Aaron. Sorry, in bringing Aaron to Him. Moses is weak on his own, but he, he seems, from what we see onwards, in the way he talks to uh, Pharaoh, that, that he just seems that he's, he's back on track and that he's encouraged that he's not doing it together. You know, God often does that in, in the believer's life, doesn't he? he? He brings encouragement and peace and comfort through others to help us on the way. You know, I was thinking... I was thinking about this yesterday. Sometimes we just think, oh, I just really need to encourage that person. You know, I just really think that, you know, I should just really encourage them at church or when I see him next. And sometimes we just don't do it. But you know what? We should do it more. Just encourage one another. You know, give each other that, that support that we need. I hope that's what's going on in, in growth groups, that we are showing that encouragement. We're sort of, we're building and forming and cultivating the places where we encourage and support one another. We see it in the New Testament, don't we? Paul often sent uh, helpers, sent his close close companions to churches, struggling churches, to encourage them, to, to get them back on track. So he sent Aaron. But he also, the other way that encouragement and assistance comes, is through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. We see it first in verse 28. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent to him. And then they get the the elders of the Israelites. And, you know, this is the start of the big rescue plan. And what do they do? They tell them everything the Lord had spoken to them. Again, they bring the Word of God into the situation. And I just think that's fantastic. Many years later, in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, what does John say? It's chapter 20, verse 30 or something, right at the end. John says, the reason I'm writing these things down, the reason I'm bringing God's Word to you, is so that you may believe. 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And you know, there's nothing better after encouragement and support from Christians. There is nothing better than bringing the encouraging word of God to God's people. What happened? They believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned, that the Lord had heard their cry, they bowed down and they worshipped. I think it's a wonderful picture of a people encountering the Holy God, being encouraged through the Word of God and putting their trust firmly in God. And isn't that a word for us today? So I go back to my first comment. How are we really trusting God in our lives? Because our trust in God will always be a reflection of our relationship with God. How's that doing? Maybe we need to encourage one another, encourage each other in our walk with God to keep going, to keep trusting, and to trust his amazing word. Why don't we just spend a few moments in reflection? And then I'll pray for, pray for us.